Hey, I'm Dr. Lakshman Lucky Mulpuri, founder of PlantsNourish.com, and I'm with SoFlow Vegans. Welcome to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. We bring you vegan experts from around the world to talk about health, the environment, animal advocacy, and spreading compassion. It's our passion to help you navigate the vegan lifestyle by listening to the experiences of vegan influencers, doctors, and experts. Thanks for listening. This is the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. And now your host, Sean Russell. Welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Russell. And on this episode, we're going to have a conversation about plant-based health. And wait, 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 wait. But this is going to be different from all of our others because this guy that we have on, I've had a chance to watch a few of his stuff. He's definitely, um, I don't know if he moonlights as a stand-up comic, but he does definitely has that timing and that energy, which is important if you've heard these messages over and over again. And our guest today is none other than Dr. Lucky, or, 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 or as his patients know him, Dr. Lakshman Mulpuri. Welcome to the show. Hey, pleasure to be here, man. I, I'll be honest, the energy, the, I love it uh, for four o'clock on a, on a, what is it, a Tuesday. And man, I, I, I was taken aback, I almost wasn't ready for it. But I'm excited to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me on. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. So the first thing that we do, if you are listening right now or watching, depending on the platform, we do our vegan origin story, which has a bigger effect now because by the time you're watching this, we have I would have released my first book called Pre-Vegans. Mm. And the whole idea of that it came from these vegan origin stories of 80 plus people telling me how they became vegan, had mm. people from being butchers to, you know, wildlife, you know, right. shooting wildlife to right. completely having that moment where they had that epiphany. So it's important for me to have these stories shared. Mm. And at the same time, it's always exciting to hear what that is for you. So that little nice little intro to what a vegan origin story is. What is your vegan origin story, Dr. Lucky? Well, you know, I think, Sean, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You know, what's interesting for me and what many people have experienced is there was definitely a point in our lives that we either didn't know what a vegan was and never thought in any way we would ever become a vegan. And so, you know, for me at the time, my story really started when my, my girlfriend at the time had suggested that she wanted to be vegan. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young guy in college. I'm, I'm pre-medical at University of Michigan and I'm minoring in nutrition. And so the first thing I think is this woman is out of her mind. Like there, there, something is wrong. She's been brainwashed. She's suffering from protein deficiency, something. Because no way would I ever even consider going vegan. And, you know, when we had that conversation, I was so taken aback. I was like, I need a few days because I need to kind of figure out if this is something I'm interested in or even that I want to do. And during that time period, I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come back at her and tell her why everything that she said was wrong. Because everybody knows, you know, yeah, maybe red meat isn't that healthy, but what about chicken? What about turkey? These are things that we all take as a foundational element of a happy and healthy diet. And so I thought, you know, being the smug 21-year-old I was, that I could explain to her why she was wrong and use all this information I gathered from the internet to change her back to the good side, as I saw it at that time. 
But you know, the more digging I did, Sean, the more I realized that maybe the viewpoint that I'd held wasn't so correct. And in fact, more than anything, it showed that plant-based diets are not only better for you, they're better for the planet and for many of the animals um, that inhabit this planet alongside us. And so it didn't take long, but the more I learned, the more I realized that plant-based nutrition was something I had to work towards. And truthfully, it didn't take long. My, uh, my partner at the time actually was from Vegas. So during a one week period in Vegas, I ate everything I possibly could. I had mm-hmm. three different Vegas buffets. I had Chick-fil-A three or four times. I did everything possible. And then on that Monday after that trip, I said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to eat this stuff ever again. And, you know, it's been five years since then, maybe even a little more. And I haven't looked back and I couldn't be happier that I made that decision. And I think I echo a sentiment that many plant-based and vegan advocates say many times, which is I wish I could have done it sooner. And one of the interesting pieces to that is your motivation, why you decided to do it. And for a lot of people, I feel like when they're not clear on that why, obviously you're, you know, the profession you're in, what you do for a living kind of adds some weight to that motivation to go vegan or go plant-based. But um, for other people, sometimes they will do it for somebody else or they'll try it out out of curiosity and then that goes into the whole conversation of vegan plant-based. Why are you doing it? You have celebrities, this, that, and the other. So I say all that to say for you, you know, you explained why you went initially, but throughout that time, has your motivation changed? Has your reason for doing it shifted? Uh, like take us through the next couple of years, specifically speaking to your why for being vegan. Yeah, that's that's a great question, Sean. And I think, you know, it's a bigger discussion about how our own attitudes and behaviors and beliefs change as we age. Because I think many of us, you know, most of us are not the same person that we were 10, 15 years ago. You know, we change, we evolve. Those are natural components of becoming older and becoming wiser. And in my case, you know, I, I initially really jumped into the vegan movement because I saw an environment where a number of innocent beings were subjected to horrendous, uh, horrendous conditions for, for really no reason at all. And then it gradually started becoming more and more medical. And as I mentioned earlier, I did a lot of looking into plant-based nutrition and more importantly, the investigative studies that underlie plant-based nutrition. But I think I have a little more of a unique perspective because of my background. You know, I grew up in and around the city of Detroit, which for anybody who might not know, Detroit is the blackest city in America. And as a result, unfortunately, has experienced some of the worst health disparities and socioeconomic differences of any city in urban America. And that lens, that perspective, I think from a very young age, informed me that I wanted to learn more about health disparity. I wanted to understand why certain people are treated the way they are and experience uh, life in such a different light than counterparts that are not even a mile away. And what I've come to realize over time is that nutrition, and particularly plant-based nutrition, is really the next big frontier. I think when we talk about racial justice and food justice, you know, I recently spoke at the Baltimore Vegan Soul Fest, which is something I discussed a lot. And a lot of the speakers there will agree with me and and I as well that nutrition is something that's very undervalued in its ability to levy the playing field, particularly for communities of color, African-Americans, Latinos. And our inability sometimes recognize that as a core component can be harmful towards advancing our, our agenda. The other big motivation for me too is I try to be morally consistent. I think most people would agree that there 
that they're not in favor of forms of oppression and those where oftentimes, let's say children, for example, in our schools are, are fed foods that will make them inevitably much sicker and put them in a worse position to succeed down the road. And yet many people are very comfortable supporting these industries to their knowledge or without their knowledge. And at the end of the day, the people who enjoy the profits the most are those who enjoy the profits based off of the, the poor health of, of our children, particularly children of color. And so, you know, this perspective has really evolved over time where I think all the components that started me on this journey are still the same. I've just added layers because I've realized more and more just how powerful such a small idea can be in that we can change someone's lifestyle and give them such a better life in so many ways that very, very few modifications in life can afford. So I'm going to take this opportunity since we're speaking um, about the social racial aspects of food disparity and talk about because you have had that experience of going into these communities and having these conversations, because it's one right. thing for, you know, someone like, even I would even put, lump myself into it because I don't necessarily think like all black people are the same or, you know, that sort of situation. It's like, oh, Sean's black. So he must be having <laughs> disparity issues. So it's like, but I do recognize right. that, you know, we have to create these short, um, you know, short connections in our brains so we can understand right. issues. Right. So I do see the importance of, you know, having labels. What are, the people saying, you know, on the ground, people that are in these communities, I'm assuming a lot of them are heads of nonprofit organizations or community organizations that are speaking on behalf of a larger group of people. But what are they saying in terms of what is that oppression? Who, you know, what's stopping these communities from having access to these foods or being aware or choosing a vegan lifestyle? Like, what is that actual conversation? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Sean. And, and I actually ran a, a nonprofit in the West Side of Detroit or helped manage a nonprofit in the West Side of Detroit called Auntie Nays Village, which, you know, we gave all sorts of public health services to the neighborhood, including, you know, food boxes and different forms of, uh, of health care and, and a community garden, et cetera. And, and I'll tell you, you know, Sean, there's it's such a complex interplay of factors that makes achieving health such a difficult proposition, especially as people get older. Because the older you get, the more set we can get in our habits. And it's difficult to sometimes realize that we should change and can change as we age. But I will say from my perspective, mm -hmm. there is a misconception that people of color, particularly in urban communities and in underserved populations, do not have a desire to change their lifestyle, improve their health in any way. I've heard this sentiment echoed in the public health level. I've heard the sentiment echoed across the healthcare industry, where there is a belief that individuals do not want to reclaim their health through nutrition. I think that's blatantly false. I think it's minimalizing the incredible socioeconomic barriers that are placed for people achieving health. And I think we are never really at the point where we can say that we've done everything we've tried. We've tried everything we can to offer people access to better, better nutrition. So, you know, the first thing I think of barriers is health literacy and nutritional literacy. There is a tremendous amount of misinformation deliberately accomplished to create confusion, not just in communities of color, but across America, where what is defined as eating a healthier diet or what the actual literature, what the actual scientific work shows is very much muddled. And it's done so purposefully with intent and it's done so very well. And I can appreciate that there are strong financial motives to ensure that people continue behaving a certain manner and, and continue eating a certain pattern. I'd say the second big thing is access, as everybody knows. That's an easy one. But, you know, I'll say that one thing that really encourages me is 
people, when they feel like they have some skin in the game, when they have some degree of involvement, are far more likely to stay engaged. And Detroit, I'm very proud, has tons of farmers markets, locally, neighborhood-based, city-run, you name it, people are out in the blocks growing their own fruits and vegetables, staying involved and attempting to increase their own source of fruits and vegetables. Because if people can't get it at the local convenience store or the store on the block, they'll go out of their way to make sure that their neighborhood and their children have some degree of access. And we can do more to bolster those efforts and make sure that people aren't so alone in their attempts at achieving better health. I'd say the other big thing is meeting people where they're at. You know, obviously a lot of times people think there's a one one fits all essentially approach to offering nutrition. And obviously being culturally sensitive is very important and recognizing that people come from different walks of life. But just because culture exists, it doesn't mean it can't be modified to still retain the most core and key aspects of culture, but also ensuring that we're able to modify it in a way that's consistent with achieving a better lifestyle and a better health. And I say the final thing that I've noticed in my time, both as a community advocate and I guess now as a doctor, is that we really, really, really need to recognize that there are strong financial motives, particularly governmental subsidizations of unhealthy foods that promote the environments that oftentimes hinder individuals from achieving good health. We're fighting against such a large industry and a large monolith that it can be very difficult to break free from that. But the more we do at a community level, the more we can do to empower individuals to eat better foods, improve their overall circumstances, and most importantly, hopefully alter the trajectory of the family moving forward. And and that starts both in the schools and in the neighborhoods that people live in. Wow. Thank you for that. And, you know, one of the things I want to kind of step into right now with you is the choice, the choice of each individual to move in whichever direction they want to, whether it comes from their health, whether I think we're speaking more plant-based than anything right now, because we're focusing on the health aspects of it. What exactly can a person do when you're looking at the more systemic causes of this lifestyle or this, you know, adopting this sad lifestyle? Because it's, you, you touched on it a little bit with the subsidies that are provided for, you know, certain types of foods. What sort of control do we have as individuals with those sort of systems that are in place? Yeah, that's, it's a good question, Sean. And I think it's, it's a tough answer. You know, in my opinion, what's difficult about changing your life, especially when you're already encountering so many barriers that people do routinely experience in an urban and underserved population, similar to the ones that I'm familiar with in Detroit and across the country, is there is a tremendous amount of decision fatigue. What do I mean when I say decision fatigue? I mean that there are so many different things that are vying for your attention, that are trying to draw your attention away from making the important thing like, I, I should eat some more salad today. I should eat some more greens. I should try making a smoothie. All these decisions in life that you have to deal with, you know, oh, the water bill's coming up. I don't know if I can make my shift next week. How am I supposed to take care of the kids this summer? All these things play into this larger fatigue that builds over time that makes it difficult for anybody to really make the choice necessary to achieving good health and achieving a plant-based lifestyle. So no matter where you are, no matter what walk of life you have, sometimes that can be a very significant barrier to overcome. And what I think we can do to really help levy that is we have to make it easier. So what do I mean by making it easier? 
improving access, more fruits and veggies in local convenience stores, incentivizing convenience stores to actually carry it. Back when I was at Auntie Nay's Village, we used to have this program at the convenience store that was funded by Campbell's Soup and then subsequently by my medical school, Wayne State University School of Medicine, where the local corner store at Auntie Nay's, which is more, no more than, what, two minutes walking away, would have local produce that was grown and brought to the actual convenience store so that people could not only come and get it, but we would provide them with a certain amount of money, let's say five or 10 bucks to get what they want from it from the day. And we do a health checkup as well. So people at least have some understanding of where their medical status is. And then they, they get access to those fresh fruits and veggies. And as we evolved as well, we started sourcing fruits and vegetables for our food box program during the pandemic from local farms in the area and who were very happy to donate. But that's, that's all well and good. You know, I think it's great that people are taking initiative and I was very proud to be part of those efforts, but we need to do more to make it easier for people to make healthier decisions. And that goes back to where we spend our money as taxpayers and where money is spent in promoting health. I am strongly in favor of medicine having tremendous advances in diabetes care and heart disease care. And it is truly remarkable how far medicine has come to really stave off and, and prevent some of the deadliest complications of disease. Yet I see heart disease being suffered in record numbers by African Americans. I see prostate and breast cancer being suffered in record, record numbers by minorities. And I often wonder, where are we putting our effort? I think a really good analogy I like is, you know, you can mop the floor as much as you want. But if that faucet's still running, you ain't doing much, right? Mm -hmm. We're just trying to clean up problems that truly need to be stopped at an earlier stage. So investing in prevention, investing in access and investing in nutritional literacy are all key components. And, you know, that's why I think schools are a really great place for that to start as well. So, you know, this investment in our children and in our infrastructure, I think will go a long way in hopefully levying some of the difficulties people have in achieving a better better life. And I also kind of adding on to that for the conversation, I feel like representation also plays a key role in terms of people using their voices, people who are in positions where they have the knowledge and are actively living that lifestyle, sharing their voice. Because I feel like a lot of the times, and I'm going to jump onto another point, a lot of the times people see the um, information that's out there, but they don't trust the source. Right. or they don't feel like the source can right. relate to what's actually happening. But that's one part. The second part is I feel like there is representation out there, but it's not equally, it's not on the platforms where people are tuning into. And we saw evidence of that in 2020 after George Floyd, mm -hmm. when every single big time company, and a few reached out to me, right. wanted to find black people Right. To speak about things right. and it just showed yeah. you like you know you could turn it on and you could turn it off right and and really there are people out there and even from the podcast that i do right now i've spoken to so many people of color out there who were trailblazers you mm. know um you know people who opened the first raw juice bar right in the country right 50 years ago you know what i mean so it's like i feel like it's easy to lose sight that there are things out there, even things like, and he's a little controversial, but like Dr. Sebi, you know, mm. people out there who are actively providing information for your health mm. and they're either being demonized or they're not getting the attention that someone else who may look different would right. get. And, and quite frankly, saying the same information. Yeah. Um, your your thoughts on that? Yeah. And a lot of prominent figures over time. I mean, Dick Gregory is a great example too. 
a very prominent black comedian and also a big advocate for vegetarian patterns, both from a moralistic standpoint and then a health standpoint. And, you know, that is, Sean, you make an excellent point because nobody, we're not a monolith. No community of color is a monolith. Everybody is different. Everybody has different perspectives, backgrounds, experiences. But what needs to be captured better is there's this concept. Uh, you, you know, you may have heard of this. I'm sure people have. Sean, are you familiar with volunteerism? No, no, no. I so volunteerism essentially is this notion that people will go to, let's say, you know, we're in Miami. So let's say they go to Puerto Rico. They'll go to Puerto Rico and they'll do, they'll do some work for a couple of weeks. They get to see Puerto Rico. They get to have all the fun. They fix up a couple of houses. Maybe they build a school and then they leave. And then the question is, what is the real long lasting impact? Were people who actually live there given the opportunity to say, this is what we actually need? I use that example because there are people across this country and even the world who have been working tirelessly with no recognition for years, grassroots individuals who are working for years, like you mentioned with the raw juice for the past 50 years. And what we need to do is support the voices that are already doing the work rather than trying to find a voice that fits our narrative. And to me, that is the one thing I was so proud to be a part of in my nonprofit work is it wasn't just that we were out there doing things. We were a trusted member of a community because Auntie Ney herself, Sonia Brown, said, these people are with me, they represent me, and when you see them, think of me. Because Auntie Ney herself has been doing work in the community for 30, 40, 50 years, for two generations even, her family before her have been providing emergency services for the community. And so recognizing that people like Auntie Ney are there in the community and they've been doing the work for decades, if not, I mean, some families, even centuries, they just need to be given the right amount of support to allow them to actually fully see their vision for the community. This isn't to say that other voices aren't integral towards building a strong approach that is financially secure and, and ensures that all parties are involved. But the fact that we always keep trying to build these narratives without accounting for the fact that people are already there and have been doing the work bothersome. It's tiresome to me. And I, that's something, you know, you brought up a great point, Shauna. I mean, we, these are the people that we have to highlight. These are the people who should be on television. These are the people whose stories really need to be getting out there. I, I think that's why your podcast is a great example of that and many more like it across the country. We want to hear from you. Visit our website to ask a question, leave a comment, or tell us how much you love the show. We'll play some of your messages during the episode, as well as directly to our guests. So be sure to leave your name and city and visit SoFloVegans.com slash podcast. And to your point on that, it's one of the things that I am passionate about, which is essentially why I do everything that I do is is to create a system to build economically sustainable and viable communities. Mm. Because I feel like even in the conversation that we're having, it could be skewed to think that we're waiting for gatekeepers to give us permission to use our voices. Mm. And in reality, I feel like just knowing the industry, I've worked extensively in multiple industries from music to whatever. People want to see that you're doing it on your own before they step and support you. Unfortunately, right. a lot of these organizations, these media outlets, whatever, that are not not equally representing people across the board, right. they had a head start because the creators, whether it be decades or half a century ago, ha didn't have the obstacles 
that other people might have had. You right. know, they were able to get loans. They were able to, you know, set up shop in areas that weren't redlined. All these different things. I'm not using those as excuses. I'm just saying sure. right now we have to recognize the certain disadvantages that people have. Right now, once you reckon that's awareness, that's like even within the medical profession, you got to know that you're sick before you can get treated. Right. You know, so you realize that, OK, that's what I'm working with. Let me not wait for someone to provide me with that opportunity. Let me figure out how I can use the community around me as my proof of concept to start having those conversations. And that's where I am. And I'm just saying this point real quickly because it's not, once again, this is, I'm not just interviewing you. I'm having a conversation with you. I agree. With new ideas. Um, right. I'm saying that more for the audience listening. Right. And so the point I'm making is if we can come together and figure out how within just the community itself, and I'm sure that's what your, your point mm -hmm. with you were doing with your nonprofit, mm -hmm. how we can keep that dollar circulating within that community so you can grow right. based off of an idea. I right. feel like if you can systemize that process and share that blueprint with the world, there's going to be so many things that are going to shift. Those individuals right. that have those years and years of research of plant-based foods and how right. they can be used as medicine aren't going to be looked as witchcraft. I'm making them as a, you know, whatever, but they're going to be able to then get their message spread across. And you're seeing that now, I think, with just the internet, the way it's set up now, YouTube, right. TikTok, you got Tabitha right. Brown out there who's yeah. kind of the game. Right. You know? right. So, so I, I see where that shift is happening, but at the same time, there's more noise out there too. I so I feel like in the next five to 10 years, you're going to see a shift backwards to the curation of content where you're right. going to have certain voices. And that's where the opportunity lies. If you are aware that that's happening and you set yourself up to be one of those new gatekeepers that mm -hmm. you're doing it on the behalf of your community, right? I see there being lots of potential for these nonprofits to come together, for these communities to come together as a global community to right. really shift the consciousness of this world, not even country, of this world. I agree. And I think, you know, that's something I, I feel very strongly about, Sean, is this notion of a personal self-sustaining incubator, right, where the ideas that are represented are that of the community and are that of what the community needs. And I'm part of this organization. I'm a, I'm a speaker and advisor for HBCU CPLM, Historically Black Colleges University, College of Plant-Based Lifestyle Medicine. So, you know, we do a number of things. We're right now introducing legislation in Maryland to offer plant-based options to inmates in the correctional facilities there. But, you know, one of the other big things that we push to is providing a space for HBCUs to have a significant voice in the advancement of plant-based medicine for the community and also different incubating businesses that will support this notion of overall lifestyle medicine and, and overall health for a community. And I don't think there's a better space to be in than recognizing that the people around you and the community around you has excellent ideas that just need to be supported. And sometimes the community themselves can be the ones to take that idea to the next level. And shifting gears slightly and speaking of taking things to the next level, if someone's listening to this or watching this and they're like, okay, I'm ready to take myself to the next level. Right, and, right. And, and, you know, what are some of these, you know, health benefits you're talking about with the plant-based medicines? Like if you were selling this to an audience of people with open ears and open hearts, like mm. what would you sell them on in terms of why they should looking at a plant-based diet? Yeah, you know, I think... 
everybody has different perspectives how they approach it. Sean, I mean, you know, there's very clearly a very strong environmental component that has recently developed and has become a, a large focus for a lot of European communities, even here in the United States. There's an excellent argument to be made, one that swayed me, which is an ethical and moralistic standpoint. Um, but, you know, I think one I can speak to the best and which I think oftentimes may reach ears the best is what you eat matters. It matters not only for you now, but it'll matter in 10 years, 20 years for you. And if you don't build the foundation now, it is something that unfortunately you'll have to cope with for the rest of your life. There's often a misnomer and an understanding that medicine has advanced so far that any problem you have, we can fix in a matter of weeks with no problems. Um, that's not true. I wish it was, <laughs> but it's not true. It's not true. And there's an excellent quote by one of my mentors and friends, Dr. Kim Williams, who was the first black president and the first plant-based cardiologist. Uh, plant-based president of the American College of Cardiology. And Dr. Kim Williams has essentially says, I know I'm going to die one day. I just don't want it to be my fault. And I think that approach can really be applied to a lot of aspects when we talk about our health. Plant-based nutrition offers you benefits that even some of the best medications on the market would be jealous of. They can dramatically reduce your blood lipid levels. They've been shown to combat inflammation through antioxidants and phytonutrients. They've been shown to have tremendous benefits for your overall health and well-being. And most importantly, the reason I sell plant-based nutrition the most is it has significant benefits on quality of life. When we talk about quality of life, you know, that's a really abstract term, I think, to a lot of people. But what I see when I see quality of life is the ability to truly be engaged and enjoy your life, not only by yourself, but with your loved ones. And because that's what it's all about. I, I, I mean, we, we all work so hard in the medical field and all of us here who are advocates for improving nutrition, we work hard because we have seen that what you eat can dramatically impact your health. And we want everybody to enjoy this. No, nobody is jealous uh, mm -hmm. of other people, you know, having health. And, you know, I think that's because internally, we all kind of wish we had that. We wish we had that answer, the way to feel better, to, the way to experience life in, in a better perspective. And at the end of the day, I want everybody to be able to live the healthiest version of themselves. And from all the research that exists, a plant-based diet is probably the best you're going to get to handling that. And the more plants you eat, the better. It's never an easy process to change, but it's one that pays dividends for the rest of your life. And it's not just about you. It never is. It's about those that you love and those that surround you. And putting that investment, taking the time to care for yourself will, will, will be equally received by those that you love. And so that's, that's great. And what I'm going to do is display the role of the person who's skeptical. All still right. skeptical. Okay. I think I've heard enough of these to be able to ask a couple good questions. <laughs> All right. So everyone listening and watching right now, I'm shifting from Sean Russell to I'm role playing right this now. Okay? Alternate, this alternate role so don't so don't don't take this out of context. You go to LA next week, right? To 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 do some to improv it, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Part okay. of that. <laughs> All, right. All, right. All right. So everything you said was great, Doc um, Dr. Lucky. But one of the things I'm concerned about is my protein. Like, how am I going to get protein, enough protein where I'm not going to start losing muscles? Because I losing weight is fine, but I don't want to lose any muscle. Right. Well, you know, actor Sean, that's a, that's, that's a great question. And I understand where some of your hesitancy may lie. You know, it seems like nowadays, everything always talks about protein, whether you're on television, you're reading the magazines, or you're on TikTok, it seems that protein is really the heavy focus. But I can assure you that you can get more than enough protein on a whole food plant-based diet. And I'll tell you something else. 
there's actually a big difference in plant protein and animal protein. Animal protein has been shown to be inflammatory to cause a number of problems with the arteries. It can also be shown overall to reduce your longevity, but plant proteins haven't had that. And if you don't believe me, that's fine, but I've got plenty of great examples for you of incredible athletes who do things that I think most of us could only dream of. And they do it on an everyday basis. People like Kyrie Irving, people in the NBA like John Sally. There are vegan, the world's strongest man at one point uh, was a vegan bodybuilder, is a vegan bodybuilder. And I could pull up the photos and pages and contacts of all the people I know who are incredibly healthy, who look great and eat only plants. So, you know, it's always good to be mindful. And I'm glad that you're being mindful about your intake. But there's more than enough plants, more enough protein in plants to allow you to live a strong, healthy life. And to piggyback off of that and go one step further, I'd recommend you watch a film called Game Changers, which highlights all the roles of plant-based athletes um, and people performing in high-performance situations who eat a plant-based diet. Off, a little off the cuff, I know, I know, but okay, that sounds good. That sounds good. But I still have a concern about nutrition and the vitamins. You know, I've heard that vegans, people who are on plant-based diets are, you know, lacking in certain vitamins that you might get from meat or animal-based products. It's, mm. uh, you know, one, one thing that I've heard the most about is B12. So could you talk a little bit about that? Like, am I at risk, you know, having, you know, low iron or these are just some of the things I've heard from people. Right. Another good question, actor Sean. Um, you know, nutrition is complex and... I think there's a belief sometimes that if you eat a certain way, you'll get all the nutrients you want. But I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, that's not true. And many people who currently eat omnivorous or the regular American diet are deficient in a number of vitamins, minerals, and fiber, which has been shown to be a tremendous game changer in the overall health of a person and has been linked to a number of positive health benefits that very few nutrients can exhibit. With regards to B12, that is actually a valid concern, and, and I do agree that um, it is important to supplement. What I tell a lot of people, though, is the reason we supplement is also the same that omnivores uh, are supplement supplementing in their own way. Most of the animals that people are eating, most of the animal products that people are eating are themselves supplemented because where we obtain B12 tends to come from the soil and certain bacteria that manifest in the soil, and animals will also have that as well, some components of those bacteria in their own stomach. But nowadays, given the concentrated animal feeding operations that the majority of the meat in this country comes from, those animals themselves have to be supplemented from B12. So why do you want all the negatives of an omnivorous diet and a standard American diet without the benefits of plants when you could have the same and just do a little B12 supplementation? And it's very cheap. Um, there's pills that I think you can get supplementation for up to 200 pills for seven bucks or so a week, which isn't a big deal. And overall, you know, your body will thank you for switching to a plant-based diet and having a couple more plants in your diet than you would if, if you didn't. That's all to say too, the more plants you eat, the higher content of a variety of vitamins and minerals that are very difficult to achieve with a standard American diet. So overall, you're in a much better position to achieve health than someone who hasn't even considered taking the step on this journey, which is, I'm glad to say that you are doing. All right. So, I mean, I, I, it sounds good, but I don't know what to do next. Okay. Um, do I have to throw everything out? Like, where do I go? Am I going to have to get new friends? Like what? Well, you know what, actor Sean, that's another good question. Uh, you don't have to get new friends. They may start to annoy you a little more than usual, but anytime anybody changes can sometimes be disconcerting even for our closest friends and loved ones. 
What I would say is, you know, actor Sean, depending on the kind of individual you are, if you're a healthy person, I'd say, you know, it's what's a good idea is to set goals for yourself. Say, let's say by the end of the month, I'm going to stop eating beef. By the end of next, the month after, I'll stop eating pork. And the month after that, I'll, I'll, I'll cut back on any animal products and processed dairies and start incorporating healthier ways to eat. That's one approach. For my patients who maybe aren't as healthy, uh, who have suffering from heart disease and suffering from a variety of conditions, some of my colleagues are larger experts in those fields than I am, would recommend that you try a 28-day plant-based diet. Now, it may sound radical at first, but... I would wager that if you don't feel better at the end of 28 days, fine, do what you want. But most people who are in a poor position of health could use all the help they can get. And diet being the thing that we interact with the most, you have three square meals a day, probably will have one of the larger impacts on your overall health status and how you feel. So there's a great app. There's plenty of great apps that exist for 28-day kickstarts. PCRM has some good apps. But I'd also recommend instead of maybe relying on something else that may not appeal to you in terms of food you like to eat, pick out three meals you like to eat and just look up plant-based versions of those. Let's say you like lasagna. Look up plant-based lasagna. See if you can get the ingredients together and cook a meal on the weekend and try to make enough for you on a Sunday that will last you for the whole week. Try that out for a few weeks and see how you feel. And the next time I see you, we can have a a little bit of a larger conversation about how to continue advancing your diet overall. But it depends on every person. I changed overnight. Some people, they need a little more time. Whichever way you, you choose will be the right way because you're making the decision to improve your health overall. And that's the first real big step in this journey. And scene. Dang, look at that. <laughs> I, I didn't even know who you were. I thought I was transported to the, to the clinic with my patient. I, I didn't even know I was at home and on the podcast. So that was that was great. That's funny. So, um, so the towards this last part, and then we'll go in a little bit about kind of what you're up to right now. I've I've had a lot of conversations, you know, thankfully to this podcast about the role of physicians in plant based medicine. Most mm-hmm. notably, you've had you've had actually the opportunity with work work with Dr. Michael Clapper, who is you know doing things in that space as well. Right. And one of the things that constantly comes up is the role of nutrition in Medical for physician in the medical field, I was looking for the right. word right. Uh, in the medical field. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because it's, I mean, it's when I heard about some of this stuff, it was like super surprising. Yeah, so I'll, I'll do you one bigger. So I, I developed and implemented the first ever plant based nutrition curriculum of any medical school known in North America. So I did this at Wayne State a few years back. Essentially, all 300 first year medical students had to learn plant based nutrition for a month. They did so with a series of online activities where they would listen to the stories of individuals who switched to a plant-based diet and experience benefits. And they were asked to ponder maybe the larger question of how do physicians play in this role of public health advocacy, both within the clinic and beyond the doors of the clinic or hospital. And then it culminated in one big half day where students met with panels of healthcare providers that utilize plant-based nutrition in their daily practice, not just doctors, but I had psychologists, I had a physical therapist, I had a couple of nurses as well. Um, And then patients who have experienced dramatic benefits from switching to a plant-based diet. Because I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of evidence that exists about plant-based nutrition. But what we need to do is highlight the humanistic value that comes with switching to a plant-based diet. Our patients live better lives, they have a better quality of life, and they're usually better for it. And giving students the opportunity to interact with patients, interact with real people on a daily basis, and do so in such a directed environment allows them the opportunity to really get a better understanding of why does it even matter what our patients eat. 
it matters because it's someone's life. And seeing people get better with plant-based nutrition, I think, really helps seals the deal. And of course, at the end of the day, everybody uh, did a cooking demo. All 300 first-year medical students did a cooking demo that was led by uh, a local chef and a number of local chefs who came and helped students do some of the arrangements and, and cooking together. And then they all, all the students got free Costco vegan samples at the end from local vendors. So it was a great event overall. And I'm very hopeful that this is something that will start gaining more traction in the country. I wrote a paper on it essentially called, man, I can't even remember the name it was a few years back, but essentially the paper was in the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. And it highlights ways that you can get nutrition involved in your local healthcare professional school. And it doesn't just have to be medical students, man. It doesn't have to be medical students, it doesn't have to be doctors. Anybody in the community should showing interest in the medical curriculum of doctors, of future doctors or future PAs or, or future nurses, whatever. Anybody showing interest is already more than most medical curriculum will ever receive. People, you think you think people care, people care about what's going on in the medical schools? Not really. I mean, nobody really thinks about it that much. And that's normal. I don't expect anybody to. But what your doctors learn in those four years of medical school will inadvertently usually set the foundation for the rest of their medical practice. And it's not hard to see that, you know, I'm sure you and Dr. Clapper talked about this, but you know, less than 30 hours of education is devoted to nutrition in medical school. And I think that even includes residency and those 30 hours are largely not clinically relevant. So that means that we're learning about rare diseases, about certain deficiencies that we just wouldn't see in the Western world. And the problem with that is that it makes people in unconsciously think, hmm, Maybe pharmaceuticals are the only way for us to properly tackle chronic disease when truthfully a combination of these approaches is really the strongest and best approach to the point where hopefully patients might not even require medication in the case of heart disease or type 2 diabetes. So there is a lot of work that remains to be done and it's really going to set the stage for the next 20 to 30 years. But I'm confident at least that my generation of doctors and hopefully the ones that come after me have a stronger and better understanding of the role that lifestyle plays in the patient's health beyond that of the operating room or, or the pill. And, you know, one of the controversies that I've discovered in doing a deep dive, obviously as an outsider in this situation, is just the incentives. Right. You know, uh, you know what is the outside of, you know, the, the Hippocratic Oak, outside of doing no harm, like what is the incentive for a business right. to cure people right. where the money is in the treatment? Yeah, I say this all the time. You know, this is my now famous quote I'd like to say, and I'm going to keep saying it until I die, I guess. Um, but, you know, we oftentimes talk about this pipeline from schools to prisons, but there's also a pipeline that exists from your school cafeterias to your hospital beds. You know, there's a definitive pathway that exists for individuals to achieve poor health, to essentially suffer from poor health in ways that many of us don't consider. And unfortunately, the healthcare system, as it stands right now, has a long ways to go to kind of break that hold that I think pharmaceutical industries, food agricultural, food agricultural corporations and, and fast food companies have on all of us. And let me tell you why it's hard, Sean. I mean, it's hard for, for anything, man, because it's personal, right? Mm -hmm. Food is a very personal topic for us because a lot of memories are made at dinner tables. A lot of memories are made from what our mom and our dads cook for us. And it can be hard to divorce those feelings sometimes from the notion that maybe things need to change. And so at the end of the day, you know, doctors are humans. They experience and have desires just like anybody else does. And they have feelings and memories that inform their, their decision making. And, you know, all the evidence in the world is great, but we need to do a better job of ensuring that we can tap into that, that emotional aspect of medicine and that 
people's lives are really suffering from the traditional conservative Western system that is currently enacted. And we can do a lot more to alleviate that suffering by improving the education of our patients, of our physicians, and the options that are offered not only in our school cafeterias and our communities, but also our hospitals, because it's all a reflection of what we view health to be and, and what we think is important. Now, I've noticed articles about hospitals adopting plant-based meals or doing outside delivery service into their hospitals, into mm -hmm. the rooms. What is the temperature right now in terms of this internal movement yeah. of more of plant-based being integrated into healthcare? Yeah, you know, it's a good it's a good point. You know, J. Cole has this great quote from when he talked with Obama. I can't remember what song he said it on, but he said, change is slow always has been, always will be. And I think that, apply, that applies to medicine. There is a lot of bureaucratic hurdles that exist for us to kind of get these systems into place so that we're able to not only tell our patients how they should eat healthier, how, how they should be healthier, eat a better, a better diet, but we can show them what it looks like because that's really what matters. Telling someone something is one thing, but showing them, having them experience it, be involved in it, that adds a certain level of personalness that's hard to that's hard to evoke from a, a conversation or, or a pamphlet. Now, I will say there are really some tremendous programs that have been enacted and that are, are being advocated for across the country. One in particular I think of quite a bit is Dr. Osfield in Montefiore, which is a hospital system in the Bronx. It has this entire floor, has uh, forks over knives running on the televisions, and he has a plant-based meal service for all the patients that come onto his, onto his floor. So those patients are counseled by Dr. Osfeld and, and his colleagues about the role that nutrition plays. And instead of just saying, mm, you know what I'm saying, like good luck, it's more the patients are then able to see the meal, able to taste it, able to be involved, and then given the information necessary to help them succeed. And I also know a lot of physicians as well who do free community events well on the weekends in their spare time in order to provide better amounts of nutritional information for patients. But it's a long, it's a long road for us to get to where we need to get. And sometimes I joke to some of my colleagues and, and patients in general, the reason you don't see a lot of vegetarian options in the hospital is because not many vegetarians are in the hospital in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think I think there's a long ways to go, but I'm confident that as long as people continue to be involved and engaged rather than passive observers, you know, I, I think I think the necessary changes will come for us to really embrace this philosophy that that health is wealth and that what you eat contributes to that. So winding down our conversation, let us know a little bit about where we can get more information about you, where people can watch some videos and, right, and see, right. see you, see you in your element. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it. Um, you know, uh, I have a, I have an Instagram where I, I post a lot of, uh, plant-based food and, I, and I'll admit my, my, my Instagram is interesting because I try to highlight some of the, some of the more junkier side of vegan food, which. I'll be clear, you know, there's a big difference between eating Oreos and, and, and eating grapes, you know, a whole food plant-based lifestyle. When we talk about eating plants really has to be plants. That's where most of the evidence comes from when we talk about achieving health. But I post a lot of, uh, you know, pics of my food adventures and travel because I think it's important for people to realize that you're not giving anything up. There's nothing that is just escaping your life and that you'll never have again. Now, should you eat those six times a week every week? No, you shouldn't eat that vegan big, vegan big Mac six times a week every week. But it's good to know that it's there so that every once in a while you can treat yourself and have those have those uh, those foods that are such an integral part of your of your life and your childhood and brings back memories. Um, and so that's kind of what I, I try to highlight it. I'll also post snippets and talks, but my Instagram is at Lucky Eats, uh, E-A-T-Z. 
uh, MD, and that's on Instagram. So Lucky Eats MD, and then I have a YouTube channel I'm trying to start that just highlights all my talks called uh, Plant Based Talks with Dr. Lucky. So yeah, you know, I'm more than happy to anybody who wants to reach out to me. I'm sure you can provide them at least with uh, my email or, or thing, and I'm more than happy to kind of talk a little more about about our discussion today. And then the final thing that we do on on this on this podcast, the first thing we do, oh, and the last man. thing what we do, um, <laughs> yeah. is we call it a moment from the heart. Right. So it's just whatever is on your heart right now that you want to share with the audience. You know, I'm gonna yield the floor to you, and if you need a couple of seconds, don't worry, we can cut it out and post. Then, as soon as you're complete, that's the end of the episode. I um, actually know it. I already know what it is. So I'm very fortunate that my mentor and good friend is Dr. Milton Mills, who maybe some of your listeners may already know of. But I was given a moment of clarity as to why I'm so involved and I work so hard to advocate and speak and and I'm involved in initiatives. Dr. Milton Mills and I were speaking in Bethesda shoot, a few months ago back in, in July. And a stranger came up to Dr. Mills and said to him, Dr. Mills, you know, you don't know who I am but I've been a big fan of yours for all these years. I've been plant-based for this many years. And I actually showed your videos to my father back home in India. And my father was so shocked by all that you had said that he completely changed his diet. And he is now lost 20 to 30 pounds. He's off all of his medications. And I've never seen him and my mother happier and healthier. The reason I bring that up is our influence may seem so minuscule in this day and age of social media individualism and these vast streams of content. But you as an individual have so much more of an impact on someone's life than you'd ever think. I, I, I mean, the fact that somebody halfway around the world who Dr. Mills has never met and probably will never meet uh, ever had such a dramatic change in their life. And the fact that someone can be a part of that journey without consciously knowing it is really something special. And everybody out there who is listening, who's a plant-based advocate, who truly believes in the benefits that plant-based nutrition can have for ourselves, for our planet, and for the animals, I mean, I, I say keep going, man. Like, this is, this is what's up. Like, this is, this is the most fundamental aspect of life is the ability to improve others, consciously or unconsciously. And being granted that privilege is so great. It's, it's such a great responsibility that we oftentimes take it for granted. So the more involved you are, the more, the more engaged you are in helping others and meeting them where they're at, the more good work you can do, the more impact you can have. And at the end of the day, I think that's what we're all here on this planet to do is, is make the most of what we have and try to make a difference. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. And hopefully we can provide the next generation with the torch necessary to continue carrying the fight. You've been listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. As you can see, our passion is to help people navigate the vegan lifestyle. Having on vegan experts from around the globe, Sean is the founder and, of course, the host of SoFlow Vegans, an organization created to help make South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at SoFlow Vegans. Find the show and more at SoFlowVegans.com slash podcast. And for questions or comments, send an email to contact at SoFlowVegans.com. Our food is grown, not born. See you next time.